Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for this evening, Friday, July 5th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present two brief papers by Clifton Emmerheiser, All the Kindreds of the Earth, addressing Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. One of the most misunderstood passages of scripture is found there in Genesis chapter 12 where Yahweh had said to Abraham that I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Today denominational Christians naively believe that this statement which God made to Abraham somehow applies to Jews. The misunderstanding of this passage is the driving force behind the wicked phenomenon which we know today as Christian Zionism. And its abuse has perhaps been even more dangerous to true Christendom than the popular misunderstanding of John 3.16. Christian Zionism is wicked because its attitude towards Jews is absolutely contrary to the attitude which Christ himself had towards Jews. Jesus hated Jews, and now Christians worship Jews instead of Jesus. Many Christians await the rule of an Antichrist, while in reality the Antichrist already rules over them while they themselves remain ignorant of it. And their churches are in collusion with the devil. But there is another problem with the common interpretations of this passage. And that is where Christians imagine Negroes, yellow and brown Orientals, American and Australian Aboriginals, Pacific Islanders, and other aliens to be reckoned among all the families of the earth, which is a concept that scripture itself never expresses and in some places even refutes. So here we shall present a two-part series of essays produced by Clifton Emmerheiser entitled as a question, All the Kindreds of the Earth Be Blessed? Parts 1 and 2. From his records, it is evident that Clifton first wrote part 1 of the series in May of 2007, but finalized both parts in January of 2009, when they were apparently published to his mailing list. That is the same month that I started Christogenia, and I created the first version of his website just a short time later, perhaps in March or April of that year. So here is the first of Clifton's two essays on the subject, which he often referred to as pamphlets or brochures or even flyers after the medium upon which they were published. He begins by citing the words of Peter from an account described in Acts chapter 3. Ye are the children of the prophets, 
and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Now Clifton begins. We are now going to endeavor to determine what this passage is saying and what it is not. There are several related scriptures throughout the Bible pertaining to this same subject, and it is imperative that we understand their context in every instance. There is probably no other group of related passages taken so entirely out of context than these. It might appear at first sight that these passages are all-inclusive in a universal sense to include all the peoples of the world. Actually, the opposite is true as these passages are exclusive rather than inclusive. And to use the term exclusive is an understatement. But before we get into the gist of this thing, we must investigate the previous happenings which led up to Peter's referring back to the Abrahamic covenant. Now Clifton will do that a little later, discussing Acts chapter 2, but here he begins with Acts chapter 10 to show that Peter, Peter himself, did not yet understand the full objective of the Christian dispensation before he uttered these words. Clifton continues, while Peter did quite well for that period of time, he was not fully aware of who all of true Israel is or was. Therefore, he, at times, addressed the wrong people by that name. He didn't really begin to understand until Acts chapter 10 when he had the vision of a vessel being lowered down to him as a great four-cornered knit sheet with all, all kinds of unclean creatures. Now most of the inept pastors of our day use Peter's vision as a license to eat unclean food to the detriment of their own health. Actually, the unclean creatures which Peter saw were the lost tribes, the lost tribes of Israel. And here a lot of self-righteous Judeo-Christians may condemn Clifton for criticizing an apostle of Christ. But Clifton was indeed correct, as the scriptures themselves prove. Peter came to several realizations after his vision, which is described in Acts chapter 10, which he himself admitted as it is recorded in Acts chapter 11 and as it is reflected much later when he wrote his epistles. Therefore, we cannot imagine that Peter's knowledge was perfected as he spoke in Acts chapter 3, because if it was, he would not have needed the vision which he had received in Acts chapter 10, several years later. Yet he received it three times because it often happened that Peter needed to hear or to do something over and over again 
in order to understand it. And the scripture demonstrates that also, especially in the closing chapter of the Gospel of John. The Acts of the Apostles describe a learning process which Christians today should also learn from. As Paul had also admitted that when he received his vision on the road to Damascus, he had a lot to learn. So Clifton continues in reference to Acts chapter 10. It is important to note that it was a four-cornered knit sheet that he saw. That four-cornered sheet represents the four-sided encampment when Israel was in the wilderness described at Numbers chapter 2 and Revelation 21.16, or at least it correlates to Revelation 21.16 as the city four square. The Greek word tetragonos at this verse means with four equal angles, in other words, four cornered. And when we read at Acts chapter 10 verse 15, and the voice spoke unto him again the second time, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. Now, I, don't, I do not want to take credit where it is not due, but Clifton himself will verify here what I am about to discuss. My original commentaries on the letters of Paul and the writings of Luke were not written from scratch when I presented them here from 2012 through 2017, over a period of almost six years. They were first written in 2003 and 2005, which is when I had completed my first translations of those portions of the New Testament. They were typeset by a friend, David Gray, and Clifton received copies of them as soon as I proofread David's typing. From that, I began expanding them, and they were expanded significantly for my presentations here. My original translation of Paul's epistles with over 1,200 footnotes was 247 eight and a half by 11 pages with appendices and indexes. Now my Romans commentary alone is about 330 six by nine pages. So that is an idea of the extent to which my notes have been expanded. <coughs> Excuse me. My original translation of Luke and Acts, without the many appendices from my historical essays, was about 190 pages and included about 2,500 footnotes. I won't release the files because they contain some errors which I have since corrected and which I do not want to propagate. <clears throat> While my notes are now much more copious and detailed than they were then. Many of my notes for Matthew, Mark, John, and the other epistles were written in 2006 through 2008, but Clifton never had seen a copy of my notes on John because they were never typeset until I presented them here 
And that process is still ongoing. We're not even halfway through John's Gospel after 26 podcasts, I believe, which is probably about 320, if I had to guess, 320 eight and a half by 11 inch pages. As I prepare my commentaries on John, which are now being presented, I have two 80 page notebooks, real old fashioned handwritten notebooks next to me, which are full of my original translation notes and commentary. And I am also expanding greatly on those. Ad admittedly, I still have a lot of yet to be published notes in handwritten articles and in the original appendices to my unpublished books if and when I can decide whether they are ever worthy of publication. So my point in relating this is that here Clifton gives me credit for some of the material he borrowed from my original translations and notes long before my translations and notes were actually published. And it was those old unpublished books from 2003 and 2005 to which he was referring. He also borrowed a lot of concepts and material from my Acts chapter 10 notes for this discussion and didn't really give me credit for it. But that is fine because on the other hand, in my original notes, I may have incorporated things that I had first gotten from Clifton. We worked together that closely during those years of our relationship that discussing many things, we often developed our understandings of the scriptures together, even if we did not agree on every detail. So in relation to his cita citation of Acts chapter 10, verse 15, Clifton continues, at this point, it is necessary then to understand what it was that God had cleansed. Israel was cleansed by sacrifice of crucifixion. And he refers his reader to Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapters 13 and 33, Ezekiel chapter 36, Joel chapter 3, and John chapters 13 and 15, Hebrews chapters 1 and 10, Titus chapter 2, and 1 John chapters 1 and 3. And Clifton has the precise verses, and they will be in the text accompanying this podcast, but they are also on the papers at Clifton's website. He then says that William Fink's translation at Romans chapter 2 verse 12 shows that Paul makes this clear. For as many as have done wrong without law, Without law, then, are they cleansed. And as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law, they will be judged. And then he refers his readers to Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, and chapter 44, verse 23. And we will read those momentarily. That particular verse from my Romans translation is quite different in its translation of a particular verb than all other translations and I have defended that in my commentary on Romans on Romans chapter 2.
and I stand by that translation today. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 26, addressing the house of Israel, says, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. What is profane is not necessarily unclean. Of course, everything unclean cannot be holy. But what is profane is not necessarily unclean. And they've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Then speaking of good priests that he would raise up at a future time, in Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 23, Yahweh says, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In my original commentary on these verses in Acts chapter 10, on this particular verse, which Clifton has cited here, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. I provided a lengthy discussion on the differences between what is coinous, which is common or profane, and what is acathartis, or unclean, a distinction which the King James Version and most other translations and commentaries, and I say most only because I haven't seen one yet that's properly explained it, but I haven't seen them all. In my original commentary, I had explained, which Clifton had a copy of, I had explained the difference between holy and profane and, and clean and unclean, between what is profane and what is unclean. And that discussion was expanded further in my more recent and actually published July 2013 commentary on Acts chapter 10. Right now it's published at Christagenia. Yahweh willing, it is a forthcoming book. Then I wrote about the meaning of the vision and discussed what it was that Yahweh had promised to cleanse that was also expanded in my more recent commentary. Something that is profane isn't holy. It's not something that's unclean. It's simply something that has been treated in a manner in which it should not be treated if it's going to be considered holy. A loaf of bread dropped on the ground becomes profane and that doesn't mean that it can't be cleaned and eaten. And, and that might be a, a good example or a bad one. But a man who race mixes becomes profane, but he can separate from that race mixing and be holy once again, cleansing himself of the sin. A steer which is slaughtered or food which is handled 
outside of the instructions or contrary to the instructions in the law is profane, but that doesn't mean that it's unclean in itself. Something unclean is what the law tells us is unclean, and those things can never be cleaned and made holy. So that's the difference between unclean and profane. And the King James Version and all other versions I've seen so far ignore it. They fail to distinguish and often mistranslate coyness as unclean. So in my original Acts notes, I had also discussed the meaning of the vision and what it was that Yahweh had promised to cleanse. And here are some of the notes from my 2005 book, unpublished book. Here the animals in the vision do not represent foods, but rather the difference between circumcised and uncircumcised Adamites, specifically Israelites. Many of the Greek tribes, the Romans, the Celts, the Parthians, and the Germanic tribes all descended from the lost Israelites of the Assyrian deportations and the migrations of Israelites from Palestine over the centuries leading up to those deportations. From the, eighth, from the 15th through the 8th centuries B.C. They were the Danans, the Dorians, the Trojans, the Phoenicians, and probably other tribes. These had long ceased following Hebrew custom and were considered unclean by the Judeans who adhered to and also added to certain interpretations of the Old Testament laws. To understand what Yahweh has cleansed, one must turn to Old Testament prophecy. In the Old Testament, the only promises of cleansing were those made to the children of Israel, which state explicitly that the children of Israel would be cleansed by Yahweh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, and nobody else, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 18, and verses 24 and 25, and several other passages were in my original notes, which Clifton had referred to here in his paper almost verbatim. Properly, an Israelite not following the law is profane. He can repent and turn back to the law and be holy once again. But a bastard is unclean, according to the law, and can never be cleansed. So while I cannot remember who first made the realization of what was important about Acts chapter 10 verse 15, that we must identify what God had cleansed in order to properly understand Peter's vision. It is not important that I remember, since we can only thank Yahweh that we now have this understanding. 
it's an understanding that Judeo-Christians don't even seek. They don't even consider the meaning of Peter's words. But here I am saying these things as an example because a friend recently sent me a message asking who it was who first realized that Yahweh did not create the non-white races, Clifton or myself. Neither do I remember that. But I do remember that early in my studies, I had much help from both Clifton and our common friend David Gray, which caused me to understand what the early chapters of Genesis were actually describing in relation to the creation of Adam. Later, when I read the Gospels and Jude and Peter in Greek, I was absolutely convinced that Yahweh did not create the non-white races. But if it were I or Clifton, it doesn't matter. We work together in order to help one another gain a better understanding of the scripture. And that too should be an example. The fact that Peter's understanding did indeed develop over time is evident in his first epistle, which was written years after his vision to the people of the Christian assemblies of Anatolia that Paul had founded. There, referring to the prophecy which is in Hosea concerning the future reconciliation of the children of Israel from their state of punishment and alienation, the apostle wrote in chapter 2, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And those things were only said in Hosea of the children of Israel and that word generation should probably have been translated as race. Otherwise, there were no Christians after the first century because they weren't chosen. Only one generation was chosen. Peter didn't use the plural. He used the singular. Continuing with Clifton, it is simply silly for all these modern-day preachers going around proclaiming that we must be born again so we can be cleansed. For we, like in Peter's vision, are already cleansed. What we need is conversion. Modern-day churchianity, as Clifton calls denominational Christianity, organized Christianity, is making the same mistake as Nicodemus did. Yahshua meant you must be born from above and not be born again. And there's a lot of difference. And by conversion, Clifton meant repentance and turning to follow Christ, which is the call of the gospel to the children of Israel. He continues, At Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we are told that Messiah spent 40 days from the resurrection until his ascension, which would have left 10 days until Pentecost. Some slickster confusion, peddlers, confusion peddlers nowadays, are trying to make it 99 days instead of 50. 
In Acts chapter 2, we are given the account of the advent of the Holy Spirit. At Acts 2.17, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 28, which says, And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. I do not remember what it was that Clifton was referring to in this reference to Slickster Confusion Peddlers and 99 Days. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 states that Christ was seen by his disciples over 40 days and then came his ascension and the first Pentecost was just a few days subsequent to those events. It should be noted at Acts 2.17, Peter says that this will come to pass in the last days. But Peter's day of Pentecost here in Acts is not the last days. Peter in his day witnessed only an earnest, which is a deposit of the Holy Spirit alluded to by Paul at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 chapter 5 verse 5 and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 a deposit or a down payment or a pledge of what was to come in the last days Clifton continues I will give you my thoughts about speaking in tongues. I would be among the first to affirm, and this is a digression, that there are heavenly languages among the angels. But at the day of Pentecost, the miracle was in the hearing rather than the speaking. For each group attending spoke in his own language. But those whose language was different heard them speak in their own language. When Paul later mentions that he spoke in tongues more than you all, it simply meant that Paul spoke several languages. At 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 18, I give thanks to Yahweh, speaking in more languages than all of you. Followed by verse 19, that in itself reveals the idiocy of the Charismatics and Pentecostals, where it says, But in the assembly I wish to speak five words with my mind, in order that I may instruct others also, than a myriad of words in a language. And Clifton makes a note that the translations are mine. Except for David Gray, Clifton had them first. We should remember that the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost was only an earnest down payment of what we would eventually experience in the later days. Personally, Clifton says, I'm looking forward to the time that I will be able to converse in every language, maybe with the exceptions of Creole and Yiddish, and I'm sure there were a few others. But to answer the question of speaking in tongues, I believe that today's Pentecostal and charismatic movements 
are a cheap counterfeit. I've studied extensively their history, and frankly, they're evil to the core. It's a minor issue, but Paul said that ultimately, tongues or languages would pass, they would fail. At Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 31, we are told that the Old Testament David was a prophet, and we should keep in mind, keep that in mind when we read the Psalms. With this passage cited by Peter, David foretold of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Yahshua the Messiah. While there are many Psalms pointing towards our Redeemer, Peter was citing Psalm 16 verse 10 in particular. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. And although Peter was not entirely aware of who all were Israel, he said this in Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that Yahweh has made him both king and messiah, this Yahshua whom you have crucified. All the house of Israel, before their division, would be all of the twelve tribes scattered abroad, mentioned at James chapter 1 verse 1. If there are those who are laboring under the illusion that Peter was directing his discourse towards all the peoples of the earth, let them be hastily and mightily reproved. Acts chapter 2 verses 25 through 28 is an exact quote of Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, the Greek of Acts differing from that of the Septuagint by only one single vowel. And that last note concerning the Greek, Clifton had surely gotten from the comments I always made when proofreading his essays. And he admits that of several of his statements here later on. He continues. Then at Acts 3.12, Peter, not yet having his vision of the four-cornered sheet, addresses indiscriminately some of the Judeans who may have been from various genetic backgrounds, as men of Israel at the temple. Later, Paul would very discriminatingly and appropriately address those of them who were truly Israelites as kinsmen according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. At Acts 3.15, Peter mistakenly and indiscriminately accuses the same people as he cited in verse 12, and charges them unwittingly, where he says, and killed the Prince of Life. As I have stated before, Peter had not yet been given his vision, and therefore we must take his words in their proper context. And today, many of us are making the same kind of mistake as Peter made. And we also haven't had our vision of who true Israel is. Go back and count the number of corners on that sheet. The following, and these are Clifton's words, the following are William Fink's comments on Romans chapter 9 verse 3 and Acts 3.15. 
Romans 9.3. Paul spends much of Romans chapters 9 through 11 comparing the children of Jacob and Esau, the true Israelites according to the flesh, as opposed to religion or citizenship, compared to the Canaanite Edomites who claim to be Israel practicing Judaism. I perceive that Peter is laying blame for the crucifixion of Christ upon the men of Israel at Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 23 and Acts chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 in a very general national sense, much as if all American citizens are responsible for the actions of our current government. Surely at least some of those whom Peter addressed here were a part of the crowd during the events which transpired at Passover only seven weeks prior, and noting Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1, not trying to stop the Jews, if you know something and do not testify, if you see a sin and do not testify concerning the sin, you're guilty of the sin. And Paul repeats that concept at the end of Romans chapter 1. You have to testify against sin or you become a partaker of it. Noting Leviticus 5.1, not trying to stop the Jews, they also share a burden of the guilt with them. Although we know that his death is not accounted to true Israelites. Of course, his enemies said his blood is on the hands of us and our children. Note that at Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Peter says, and by wicked hands, which I would translate, and through lawless hands, which is more accurate. It is obvious that Peter did not yet truly distinguish between Israelite and Canaanite Jew Israeli, and this is Clifton's words, except possibly for this one statement where Peter said, through lawless hands, part of my notes. Ending his citation of my comment, Clifton continues his response. This then generally brings us to our topic at Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Who are the kindreds here? And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. <coughs> Excuse me. This demands an investigation into the word kindreds as it is used here. It is the Greek word 3965 in Strong's. We will use the enhanced Strong's lexicon, the word patria. Patria, a derivative of 3962, which is pater or father. Three occurrences, the authorized version translates as lineage once, as kindred once and family once. 
lineage running back to some progenitor, ancestry, a race of tribe, a race or tribe, a group of families, all those who in a given people lay claim to a common origin. The Israelites, which distributed into 12 tribes, descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. These were divided into families, which were divided into houses. And lastly, defining patria, family, in a wider sense, nation or people. Clifton says, actually, 3965 is derived from 3962, meaning father or patriarch, and partially described by the enhanced Strong's lexicon as a generator or male ancestor, either the nearest ancestor, father of the corporeal nature, natural fathers, both parents, a more remote ancestor, the founder of a race or tribe, progenitor of a people, forefather, so Abraham is called, Jacob and David. Subsequent definitions, ancestors, forefathers, founders of a race. There's one definition here I would disagree with. One advanced in years or a senior the, the Universalists love that. And finally, the authors of a family or society of persons animated by the same spirit as himself. That's important. The same spirit as himself. Clifton says, if one will check the Dictionary of Biblical Languages for the Greek New Testament by James Swanson, it all boils down to the fact that patria is lineage or family line, citing Luke chapter 2, verse 4, and Ephesians 3.15. For the Hebrew word ab, which means father, we will now go to a dictionary of biblical languages with semantic domains for the Hebrew Old Testament. And this is number three in the dictionary. Ab. A father. The male progenitor of an offspring. Or male adoptive parent. A grandfather. The male progenitor of a child's parent. An ancestor, forefather. A person many generations removed from a current generation. A founder or originator, one who causes something to begin, including profession or cities. A caregiver, formerly a father, i.e. one who cares for persons in need as a figurative extension of a father caring for a child's needs. Sir, formerly father, a title of respect of a lesser to a greater degree in authority, implying relationship and respect, and it would have to. Father, a title of God or a false God, as the progenitor and creator of persons he has relationship with. 
discussing the idols of the heathens or referring to the idols of the heathens. A clan, formerly a house of the fathers, a subgroup of a main clan, tribe, division. An ancestor, forefather, formerly fathers of fathers, a person many generations removed from a current generation. Clifton says, all this should prove that even some of the liberal universalists who write these hard-to-understand lexicons, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of original language, cannot avoid the truth of kindreds being a family line. Because we are running out of space needed for this presentation, Clifton did his best to fit these essays on two sides of an 8.5 by 14 piece of paper in four columns. Some of them were briefer and two sides of an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper in three columns on each side. Because we are running out of space, it will be necessary to continue it with another brochure. I would have, I would have preferred essay under the same title, designated Part 2. I would warn you in advance, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on this passage. It should already be becoming quite evident that the context is very different than what many attempt to make it mean. Almost all the mainstream churches take a universalist position on this passage, and sadly, many in Israel identity follow suit. And that is sad, but it is also true. Clowns like Eli James and Ted Wyland adopt the universal, mainstream, denominational Christian view of this passage. And that's pitiful, pathetic. In order to fully understand what Acts 3.25 is all about, and what this brochure or essay and the next addresses, it will be necessary for the reader to obtain both parts of this presentation. At this point, it appears that a second flyer will be enough to wrap up this discussion. A second essay. All the kindreds of the earth be blessed? Part 2 by Clifton Emmeheiser. It's an awkward question, but it's a question. As I finished up part 1, I was saying, all this should prove that even some of the universalist, the liberal universalists who write these hard-to-understand lexicons, when it gets right down to the nitty-gritty of the original language, cannot avoid the truth of kindreds being a family line. All those things presented in Part 1 may not fit our description of kindreds at Acts 3.25, but we should now have a better general idea of its meaning, and it doesn't include non-Adamites, or non-white people. Rather, it includes Adamites, particularly those listed in Genesis chapter 10. We will now consult the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, editors Gerhard Kittel and Gerhard Friedrich, on page 1014. Patria in the New Testament. The, being the subtitle. 
in the sense of a father's house or kindred. Patria occurs in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph is of the house and patrias, or family, of David. And I'll try to, I'll have to necessarily repeat some of the Greek and Hebrew, but I will try to simply translate it all into English. There's a lot of Greek and Hebrew here that doesn't have English definitions. Does patria come from a source used by the author? Even if not, it is readily explicable, meaning the author of a source used by Peter, as he said those words in Acts chapter 3. Those words were later recorded by Luke. House of David implies house of the ruler. It is thus in place to add patria with kahi, in order to make it clear that the reference is simply to ancestral descent. And of course, that also refers to Luke in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. The phrase also carries with it a reminiscence of Oikos Patrius, house of the fathers, and approximation to it. Acts 3.25 is related to the other branch of Septuagint usage for which they refer the reader to other pages in their dictionary. This passe hi patriahi tes all the families of the nations, equals nations, that word patriahi, they are saying is equal to the word nations, synonymous with nations equals nations in Peter's address, though it refers to the promise to Abraham and agrees neither with Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where the word is mishpaka and in the Septuagint because they're examining the use of this Greek language in, in Acts and in Luke to the use of the Septuagint trying to pinpoint how the apostles meant this word patrius when they wrote it in the New Testament. That's the point here. So they claim that Peter's use of patriahi, the plural form of patria, agrees with neither Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, where the word is mishpaka, and in the Greek phule, or fulahi, if you will. Fulahi are clans or tribes. I think mainstream Greek readers would say phile. They would pronounce that. Nor does it agree with Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, or 22:18, where the word used was goyim, or ethne which is nations. It is a further and perhaps independent extension of the customary Septuagint rendering of Mishpaka by Patriahi. It again substantiates 
the influence of the liturgical parts of the Psalter, which were of missionary significance and which found a home in the community's vocabulary of prayer. This prepares the way for an understanding of Ephesians 3.14 by showing how open primitive Christianity was to this meaning of patriarchy in the Septuagint. And of course, that's all bullshit. Of course, the conclusions made by the editors we would consider to be wrong. Peter is not redefining the family of the Old Testament, and neither was Paul whose mission was explicitly stated to be to the twelve tribes, or families, of Israel. For example, in Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. Now Clifton continues from the same source for the word as it was used in the Septuagint. Patria, in the Septuagint. Again, from the theological dictionary of the... New Testament, editors Gerhard Kittel and Gerhard Friedrich, on page 1016, two pages later. The word is common in the Septuagint, especially in First and Second Chronicles. It is used more often than the Hebrew demand. This proves that it was a favorite word. The organization of the tribal life of the Hebrews is based on the primary cell of the family with the father as the head. The union of several families, referring to 1 Chronicles 23.11, forms the father's house as a sept, S-E-P-T, in Scotland, a division of a family or clan. The phrase, and this language in this definition is very concise, so I'm going to have to add a couple of words here and there, phrase being one of them. The phrase baith ab, and in the plural, baith abith, shortened to Abith in First Chronicles chapter 7 verse 11. And then they refer us to the stereotyped Lay Beth Abithim from Numbers chapter 1 verse 2, etc. This terminus technicus, they're calling it a technic technical term, Father's house is rendered oikos patrias or oikos patrion. That would be the father's house or the house of the fathers in the Septuagint. The formula lebeth abithim is almost without exception translated cat oikos patrion auton, which means according to the houses of their fathers. In Numbers chapters 2, 32, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapters 2 and 4, and in Second Chronicles chapter 35 and elsewhere. But the bigger union, the clan, the Mishpaka, into which the sept 
combine as a military organization, or an ideal number, can also be rendered in the Septuagint by patria, oikoi patrias, which is houses of the fathers, as well as, or houses of the clans, I should say, or families, as well as demos, which is just people. Sometimes then we find, when we find mishpakam with abif in the Masoretic text, obscurity can arise in the Septuagint through the twofold use of patriahi. The heads of the father's houses. The Hebrew words nasim, roshim, and shalit are mostly hoy arkantes or hoy arkantes aton, kat oikis patrion, which means their chiefs according to the houses of the clans. Citing Numbers chapter 17, verse 17. Though sometimes also archegoi oikon patrion, which is chiefs of the houses of the clans, and about the same number of times hegumenoi patrion, which is simply leaders of the clans, or Arkahi, patrias, chiefs of the clans. Other terms are used on, this oca on occasions. The ministering classes, and this is the bullshit part of this definition, the ministering classes, the main divisions of the priesthood of Israel, can also be called Beith Abith, which is the equivalent of Oikoi Patreon, the houses of the clans, or that Hebrew is house of the fathers. They're citing, um, among other sources, 1st Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, and 2nd Esdras to support that. And I have a long note here on Second Esdras in the Septuagint, also including the Book of Nehemiah, although some editors recognize it separately. Brenton recognized it as a separate book. If these senses, and they're talking about the ministering classes, that where this is used of the Levites, it's used in the sense of the ministering classes, and that's just a lie. If these senses, which also apply to the Levites, stand within the framework of the tribal division of Israel, there is in the Septuagint a further usage which applies to the nations. Especially important, however, is Ahipatriahi ton ethnon teis geis. Always for mishpaka, in the sense of the nations or races, and that Greek translates to the families of the nations of the earth. And they're saying that families there is always mishpaka, 
in the corresponding Hebrew passages from the Masoretic text. Then they go on to cite, and Clifton has a few ellipses here, the enthronement Psalm 95, which is influenced by Deutero-Isaiah, and I certainly don't remember, don't, don't believe that, made a deep impression on Israel through its liturgical use. This is shown by its employment in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 to 33, where in verse 28, the phrase, we see the phrase, patriahi ton ethnon, which is families of the nations. Now Clifton has a note. Deutero-Isaiah is a designation, meaning second Isaiah, made by those who doubt the author of chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah was the same as that of chapters 1 to 39. Note that these chapters address the restoration of Israel that had already left Palestine and even in the Isles of the West, Isaiah chapter 41, or headed there, Isaiah 66, 19. And I didn't note it here in my, in my notes for this presentation, but I'm pretty certain that Clifton received that note from me when I proofread this article for him. And, and that's happened quite often. Not that I'm trying to take credit for any of Clifton's work. Notice that towards the end, the dictionary definition becomes deceptive. It attempts to differentiate the use of the Greek term hoikoi, I'm sorry, oikoi patrion, houses of the clans, and its Hebrew equivalent, Beth Abith, house of the fathers, as referring to the ministering classes, while in the passages that were provided for proof, those terms are speaking of the clans of the sons of Levi within the greater tribe of Levi as families and not as a class. They seem to do this to set up the idea that the term for clan could somehow be spiritualized as they applied it to the term in their explanation of its use in the New Testament. So there is more universal, universalism in this definition than Clifton may have detected, where now he comments, because this reference led at times toward universalism, it was necessary to use ellipses, deleting lexical error. Maybe Clifton didn't use enough ellipses, but I'm glad that he left in the parts he did so that we could discuss the fault with that concept that they, that they try to suggest that all of a sudden, because it's talking about Levites, it's talking about ministering classes, where it's really these passages only apply to 
families within the greater tribe of Levi, just like the same word often applied to families within any of the greater tribes of the other tribes of Israel, or, or Israel itself, divisions of, of Israel itself into tribes. So they just lie to get that idea of ministering classes into their definition so that they could extrapolate that into universalism in the New Testament. And that's just wrong. It's deceitful. It, it's deceptive. So because this definition also stated that ahi patriahi ton ethnon teis geis, which they say, where they say that patriahi always stands for mishpaka, but it's used in the sense of the nations or races, I wanted to bribe Clifton with my opinion and all the information that I could so that he could make a thorough refutation of this deception. But what Clifton did instead was to finish his paper with my notes incorporated into his conclusion, as we shall see. He also stated of his, um, of his material above this, that he inserted in brackets explanatory notes by William Fink, which were not part of the theological dictionary of the New Testament commentary. And there were several of them, and they will be retained in these notes, even though I skipped over them here. I didn't present them here. They weren't important to the meat of this presentation to the matters actually being addressed. Clifton continues, I will now use William Fink showing every occurrence of patria in the Septuagint from the Hatch and Redpath Septuagint Concordance. And I wrote Clifton this note that it is used of a family as a unit within a tribe of Israel and I listed all those occurrences, and they are very numerous, so I will not repeat them here in the podcast. In some instances, they were used with, with qualifiers, um, patria, the families, and their seed in Ezra or, or in Nehemiah. The word appears... In the prophets, it's used very often in the historical books of the Old Testament and in the Torah or the law. But in the prophets, the word only appears at Jeremiah chapter 2, chapter 3, and Ezekiel chapter 45. And it's also used ambiguously in Psalm 106 or 107 in the King James Version, 106 in the Septuagint. It is, used, it is used synonymously as a term for one of the tribes of Israel um, on several occasions in the book of Numbers, in chapters 7, 13, 7, and, and 17 twice, four times in Numbers chapter 17, 
and once in Numbers chapter 25. But this term is also used to distinguish a division of foreign or non-Israelite or non-Adamic people, this word patria, where we are told also who those people were specifically, for instance, of Midianites in Numbers chapter 25 or Kenites in 1 Chronicles 2 verse 55 or Chaldeans in Jeremiah 25 9. It is where the term families of the nations appears in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and in Psalm 21 and Psalm 95, their enthronement psalm they call it. It is only there that Kittle and Friedrich and so many others attribute missionary significance to the term. Everywhere else, except the few examples just given, the term is only applied to the clans of Israel. Yet how could Psalm 21 and Psalm 95, or actually that's Psalm 96 in the King James Version, I'm sorry, the Septuagint Psalms, um, after a certain number, they are one off from, or up to a certain number, they are one off from the Psalms in the King James Version. So when I'm talking about Psalm 95 and, and even our source material here, Kittle and Friedrich had mentioned Psalm 95, but in the King James Version, that would be Psalm 96, their enthronement psalm. How could Psalm 21 and Psalm 96 and 1 Chronicles 16, 28 be referring to any other but the Genesis 10 Adamic nations. Now, Clifton breaks from my notes without informing his readers to cite another portion of the discussion of patria from his source dictionary, and that is patria outside the New Testament from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament by Gerhard Kittelin Gerhard Friedrich. Already in Herodotus, patria means the family as derived from the father. It is used specifically for the father's family tree. But patriahi can also mean tribes, equivalent to phule or fulahi, or phile as they would say it in today's universities. I reject that. Elsewhere, it is used for patra, which can mean not only country or native city, but also house, tribe, family. So in Pindar, Pythia, book 8, or, or probably chapter 8, I'm sorry, and Nemia, chapter 6, it is tribe or race. The central point is always derivation from the same father or ancestor, no matter whether the reference be to nation, tribe, caste, or family. It should be noted that by linguistic formation, patria is collective and thus concrete, not abstract. So they're saying that patria was concrete outside of the New Testament, but it was perhaps abstract in the New Testament? Bullshit. 
that's not true. Now as Clifton responds, once again from my notes, as I was responding to that portion of the article which he had just cited. Surely patria can mean country or native city, but only in the sense of fatherhood. And I refer to Liddell and Scott's definition of patria, one's fatherland, native land or country home. And in this sense, Pindar used the word which is necessarily diluted in English if one wishes to keep a translation in simple language, for not all Greek ideas fit neatly into single English words. The Greek cities were of a tribal nature and inhabited by citizens who were generally of a single tribe, whether they be Dorian or Danon or Ionian. So surely Pindar's use of the word does not allow for any universal application of the word. Kittle and Friedrich state here that patria means the family as derived from the father. It is used specifically for the father's family tree. And then it should be noted that by linguistic formation, patria is collective and concrete. And so one should certainly not attempt to spiritualize this word. When Abraham was first given the promise that and in thy seed shall all the kindreds or families of the earth be blessed, recorded in Acts chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was standing in Haran, the ancient land of Arphaxad, the land of his own fathers. Around him dwelt a circuit of descendants of all the Genesis 10 families, the white race of Adam. These and no other are all the families of the earth, those of them who had a common father in Adam. The other branches of the Adamic race were blessed in Abraham's offspring because Israel was preserved by Yahweh to perpetuate the Adamic race, to carry on the battle against Satan, the children of the enemy, and from them came forth Yahshua Christ, without whom resurrection would not be possible. The other white Adamites, while not Israel, also had the spirit which Adam had, and while this is barely within the scope of the Bible, they too will be resurrected. And I refer to Luke chapter 11, verses 32 and 33, and Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, where Paul addressed Jephthah Ionians, the tribe of Athens. Now, under the heading... Patria in the New Testament by William Fink. In the New Testament, patria is used only three times. In Luke 2.4, from the house and family of David. There is good faith why both terms are used. For house refers to legal inheritance, while family refers to bloodline. At Acts chapter 3, verse 25, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds, or families, of the earth be blessed. Here, patria is in the plural, and refers to those Genesis 10 families, 
all derived from a common father, because it must be concrete, Adam through Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 15, ex hu passa patria, ex u passa patria. And urenos kahi epigeis onomazete, or onomazetahi. That's the third person singular. It is named. And this is from whom the whole family in the heavens and upon earth is named, literally. Here, Kittle and Friedrich failed to distinguish between patria in the plural at Acts chapter 3, verse 25, and in the singular at Ephesians 3.15, where Paul means something entirely different. Ephesians 3.15 discusses not every family or all families, but one family. Not only is support for this found in Amos chapter 3 and Matthew 15.24, but elsewhere in Paul's own writing, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 8, and many other places which are not so obvious in the English translation of the authorized version. Ephesians 3.15 clearly refers only to Israel, the whole family, because the word is singular, and the verb, the related verb, is singular. The pronoun is singular. It's all singular. Where that word pas refers to, is used to describe a plural, it could be every. But where that word pas is used to describe a singular, it can only mean the whole. This concept, which Clifton's source had provided, that ahi patriahi ton ethnon, was used in the sense of the nations or races is deceptive because it removes the phrases from the biblical context in which it was used. It removes the phrase from the biblical context in which it was made or written would probably be a better word. The promise to Abraham, which included those words, was made in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 10, we see the words defined. First, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, speaking of Jephthites, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his own tongue, after their families in their nations. And I should say that Clifton ended my original remarks with my comment on Ephesians 3.15. In then in Genesis chapter 10, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Then in Genesis chapter 10, verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. And finally, a conclusion in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, which encompasses all of the foregoing, these are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. That could say 
in the land after the flood. The promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 could say, all the families of the land be blessed. <coughs> Here in Genesis chapter 10, we see defined all the families of the earth. Only these are all the families of the earth in Genesis chapter 12, just a few verses later. And only one race came exclusively from these families, which is the white race. Since the time of Abraham, other races mixed with many of those families. But those other races are not a part of the original patria. And therefore, they are not a party to the promise found at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Now Clifton finishes with his conclusion. We will see again that the nations to be blessed were the Genesis 10 Adamic nations. For this, we will need to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You'll notice that Strong's, the Strong's number for ground is 127, which is the same number as used for earth at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and Genesis 28, 14, when the covenants to Abram and later Jacob were made. Genesis 12, 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth, 127, be blessed. The same word, and this is Clifton's point, which is translated as ground in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. That word was also translated as land over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Land. That's all it means. Then Clifton cites Genesis 28, 14, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The same word, Eretz, Strong's number 127, translated ground, and it was translated land, again, over a thousand times in the Old Testament. You could count them in Strong's Concordance. Clifton concludes, now the Masoretic text is inconsistent with the parallel passages at Genesis 22:18 and 26:4, where the only where only the Strong's number 776 word for earth is used. In the above verse, both 127 and 776 appear, but 127 applies to families, as it does in Genesis 12:3. Therefore, it is as much as saying, and in thee shall all the nations of the Adamic earth be blessed. This is a far cry from how Judeo-unchristianity is trying to apply Acts 3.25 today. That word 127 is not Eretz, it's Adama. I'm sorry. I, I was confused. 776 is Adama and is also earth or land. And 776 Eretz that's the word that was translated as land a thousand times in scripture. Clifton concludes, finally, 
Therefore it is as much as saying, and in thee shall all the nations of the Adamic earth be blessed. This is a far cry from how Judeo-unchristianity is trying to apply Acts 3.25 today. And with this we would agree that at the time when the words in Genesis 12.3 were uttered to Abraham, they could only have referred to the Adamic families of the land which were descended from the sons of Noah. But even stricter is the revelation which Paul of Tarsus provides as he interprets this promise in Galatians chapter 3. Just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh and it was accounted to him for righteousness, then you know that they from faith, they are the sons of Abraham. And the writing having foreseen that from faith Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. The King James Version has heathen instead of nations, and that is also a deception. The scripture shows that Yahweh had promised to cleanse only the children of Israel and that Yahweh had also promised to justify only the children of Israel. The nations of Abraham's seed are further defined as the recipients of the promises where Paul wrote of them in Romans chapter 4, that the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, plural, all, not just Christ, plural, all. And the faith of Abraham was that his seed would be the heir of the world. That's what Abraham believed. That's why People are from the faith. They are from the faith of Abraham. It doesn't matter what you believe in relation to this. It matters what Abraham believed. Abraham, as I've said many times, did not believe in niggers. Abraham did not believe in Chinamen. Abraham did not believe in Latin American squat monsters. Abraham did not believe in Asiatic or Australian aboriginals. Abraham, Abraham believed that his seed would inherit the world. His seed are all the families of the earth. As Paul said, this was looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And we still wait for its culmination. But in that manner, Clifton's opening remarks here this evening are indeed fully vindicated. That word ground Clifton was referring to in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is Adama and Clifton's viewpoint being presented there seems to be that the word Adama being ground there and the word Adama being ground in the promise to Jacob, that that 
suggests that only the Adamic nations are the allegorical ground upon which these promises are counted. And with that, I will say good night. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.